Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of hopefully your favorite paranormal podcast called Paranormal Exposed. This is the evidence-based podcast that looks into various paranormal occurrences that happen here across the United States. I'm your host, Michelle, and while I am a skeptic by nature, I really do want to be a believer. I am both intrigued by the paranormal and open to the possibilities of what might be out there. So join me every Wednesday as I dive into a different paranormal topic and present to you what is real, what is not real, and what may just be in between. I will present to you the historical facts as well as the paranormal reports, and we will see where the two meet. So join me in exposing the paranormal. This week's episode takes us to an area in southwest Vermont. And this is a little different from past episodes because I'm not focusing on a specific place, but a specific area. And while many of you may be familiar with the Bermuda Triangle, you might not be familiar with the Bennington Triangle, and that is the story I'm going to cover this week. There are various triangles across the world, which I was not aware of, and this is the one I chose to focus on as It was pretty interesting. There's been a lot of different occurrences that were said to have happened here. And the Bennington Triangle, it encompasses a couple ghost towns, including that of the town of Glastonbury and the town of Somerset. And it surrounds the Glastonbury Mountain. Now, before I get into this episode... I do want to say that there is a report of suicide in this episode, which is a very difficult topic. So if you do need support, I want you to know that you can call the National Suicide Hotline in the U.S. toll-free at 1-800-273-8255. And if you don't feel comfortable talking with someone about this over the phone, you can also visit their website at suicidepreventionhotline.org and chat with someone virtually. So a little bit about the area is it was originally settled by the Abenaki tribe, who are part of the Algonquin tribe. Per legend, this tribe said that the area was cursed and would only go to the area to bury their dead at the base of the Glastonbury Mountain. Now, while Bennington Triangle is centered around the Glastonbury Mountain, where they are said to have buried their dead, It does not actually have clear boundaries. It's just a general area. And why it is named the Bennington Triangle is it was named for strange occurrences, including reports everything from aliens and Bigfoot to man-eating rocks and strange disappearances. It didn't get its name until 1992 when a paranormal author and enthusiast compared it to what is known as the Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts, which will not be covered in this episode, but you can definitely check it out because that one was interesting as well. The town of Glastonbury, there's a lot of focus on this town as a lot of things happened here. This town was pretty small, but after the Civil War, the demand for coal and wood rose, making Glastonbury rise quite a bit in population. It turned into a bustling coal and logging community. And in the late 1800s, there was two murders that occurred in the town of Glastonbury. One happened in 1892, and the murderer was a man named Henry McDowell. 
Though his real name was actually William Conroy, I'm not sure why he went by both of these names. Henry, he was a sawmill worker who was in the town of Glastonbury. And one night he had been drinking heavily when he was having an altercation with one of his co-workers. In the end, he picked up a large object off the ground. Some state that it's a large rock. Some state that it was a large piece of wood. But regardless, he used this item to bludgeon his co-worker named John Crowley to death. John Crowley was only 38 years old. He didn't immediately die, but he did end up eventually succumbing to his injuries. And McDowell was fearful of being put in jail, so he fled the area. Eventually, though, he was recaptured and committed to an asylum in Connecticut. The reason they put him in an asylum is he is said to have reported voices in his head telling him to kill John Crowley. Because of his reports of hearing the voices, he was committed to the asylum to serve his sentence. During his commitment at the asylum, he worked in the yard at the asylum. One day, he planned his escape, and he did this by hiding under a load of coal in a railroad car. He was not found and escaped the area and was actually never seen again. The second murder occurred on October 1st of 1897, a few years later. This story involves John Harbour and was just south of Glastonbury in Bickford Hollow. He was a Woodford citizen who had come to the area to go hunting. This was actually the first day of hunting season and he was out hunting deer. He didn't come back from his trip, so people started to get worried and sent up a search party to find him. And when he was found, he had actually been shot to death by an unknown assailant. The odd part, though, is John was an experienced huntsman. He knew how to handle his gun, but his fully loaded gun was actually right next to him and had never been fired. His body also appeared to have been dragged for several yards before it propped up against the tree, leading many to believe that he was shot and then something or someone moved him to the tree. Those were the two strange reports that happened in Glastonbury in the late 1800s. Now, the issue with the town is the coal and logging business began to slowly dwindle as people were focusing on different means to heat their houses, things like that, so the town began to turn its focus. They didn't want to become a ghost town, so they focused on tourism. How they did this is they completely remodeled the town to focus their efforts on getting people to come and visit. They turned the railroad that would go up the mountain to transport logs and coals and turned it into a trolley line that would take tourists up the side of the Glastonbury Mountains. The Longing House became a hotel. They turned the company store into an apartment house, and it also became a casino and a restaurant. Though this only lasted for one summer, and that was the summer of 1898. The reason this is, is in the fall of 1898, there was a big storm that came through. 
The area around Glastonbury had been clear cut during all the logging, so there really wasn't any tree cover to stop or slow snowmelt. In addition to the snowmelt and the storm, it resulted in the town becoming flooded. The flooding actually destroyed most of the town, including the railroad, which would make it impossible for tourists to get up the mountain to the town. After the flooding, most people left the town, leaving it as a ghost town. Only three people from one family ended up remaining. And this is a similar story to the nearby ghost town of Somerset as well. Now I'm going to get into probably what is the most famous reports of the Bennington Triangle, and that is of the odd disappearance that seemed to keep happening. I'm going to go through each reported disappearance one by one and give you the facts of them as I go. On October 11th of 1942, there was a 13-year-old boy named Melvin Hill. He was in the Bennington, Vermont area when he disappeared completely. People are said to have searched for him, but he was never found and there was no evidence of where he might have gone. As far as the reports on Melvin Hill, the reports are very vague. Um, nobody really says where he disappeared exactly, what he looked like, what the search was. It just says that he disappeared in 1942. I did look up ancestry and genealogy records for this, and there was a 13-year-old Melvin Hill who was born and lived in Bennington, Vermont. Though this boy, if he went missing, he ended up being found. He lived in Bennington, Vermont before he eventually moved to Washington, living a full life in Washington State with his wife till he was 82 years old. Though Melvin Hill's parents did continue to live in Bennington for the rest of their life, so maybe when Melvin Hill went to live with someone else, people reported he vanished, but he really didn't. This brings us to the second disappearance, and this one happens on November 13th of 1943. This is the story of Carl Herrick. Carl was out hunting with his cousin Henry, and they were just 10 miles northeast of the town of Glastonbury. They became separated during their hunting, which, if you're experienced with it at all, you realize that hunters don't hang out together. They usually split up and have their own hunting area. At the end of the day, the cousin Henry went back towards the campsite and was surprised to see that Carl hadn't made it back to camp yet. He wasn't concerned until nightfall because hunters don't stay out after dark. He waited till morning light, went out to find Carl, but he couldn't find him anywhere. Searchers came and helped him, and eventually, three days later, Henry was found, although, unfortunately, it was just his body. When he was found, he was surrounded by large footprints and had appeared to have been squeezed to death as his ribs actually punctured his lungs. Now, with the large footprints, this could have easily been a large animal like a bear. This is a very remote area. So that would definitely not be unheard of, though you would think they would remark it as bear prints, as these are definitely very easily recognizable. 
I tried to research what exactly happened in newspaper archives and things like that, but there isn't anything to corroborate how his death came about as far as the newspaper archives. So per his death certificate, he died at the age of 37 in Vermont, and his place of death is about 40 minutes or so outside of where his death is reported to be. His cause of death was punctured lungs, and he did have a cousin, Henry. So this story is very plausible, though I didn't see anything other than the punctured lungs that would state that he was killed by being squeezed to death. As far as I can think, you can have a punctured lung from your ribs if he fell and hit a rock or things of that nature. It doesn't necessarily mean he was squeezed. Also, I'm not sure why it's reported he died in the Bennington Triangle as he was 40 minutes outside of this area. I'm now going to go to the next reported disappearance, and that is on November 12th of 1945, which is about two years after the disappearance of Carl Herrick. This is the story of Mitty Rivers. Mitty Rivers was a 74-year-old man who was guiding four other men on a hunting trip. They were in Hell Hollow, which is in southwest Glastonbury. When they were returning from their trip, Mitty actually got a little bit ahead of the group and disappeared around a corner. When he disappeared around the corner, the group actually lost sight of him and they couldn't find him, but they wouldn't worry. He was an experienced huntsman. He knew the woods very well, so they figured they'd catch up with him when they got to camp. This happened along the Long Trail Road and the Route 9 area. When Mitty did not return to camp, a search party ensued looking through the area thoroughly, but they never found Mitty. The only evidence they found was a single rifle cartridge that would match the cartridge that would have been used in Mitty's rifle. The cartridge was found in a nearby stream, but again, Mitty was an experienced huntsman. He had been in these woods for a long time, fishing, hunting, guiding other people. No one could figure out how he would have gotten lost. There was an eight-day search with locals and soldiers from the Massachusetts area, and this is confirmed via newspaper articles and ancestry records. But again, even after these searches, Mitty was never found, and the cartridge from the rifle, we have no way of knowing that that is actually Mitty's. Um, there were a lot of hunters in the area. It could have been one of theirs, but it was an area near where Mitty disappeared, so it could have been something like he was leaning over into a stream, it fell out of his pocket. No one quite knows for sure. Then on December 1st of 1946, the most famous disappearance happened, and that is of Paula Jean Weldon. Paula was 18 years old and was a sophomore in college at local Bennington College. She worked in the college dining hall, and after she had finished her shift, she changed into a light red jacket with a fur collar, jeans, and sneakers, and told her roommate, Elizabeth Johnson, that she was going on a hike. She made her way towards the area where she asked somebody for directions to the trail. 
She also asked them about the length of the trail before heading towards the bridge that led to the trail. She was seen on the trail by an older couple who stated that they saw her walking down the trail before she disappeared around a corner. She was also spotted by a man named Ernest Whitman and a few of his friends in Bickford Hollow, but after she passed them by, they never saw her again either. When Paula set out for her hike, it was about 50 degrees out and it was sunny. It was a beautiful day for hiking. Though that evening, it dropped to nine degrees with three inches of snow falling. Paula never came back to her dorm room, and when she didn't return, an extensive search ensued with the help from the FBI, and the family even offered a $5,000 reward for anyone who could help them find Paula, though no evidence was ever found. There are a couple rumors of what happened to Paula. One rumor states that she left for Canada with a boyfriend and became a recluse in the mountains there. This probably comes from, as she was on the long trail, it's a 273-mile trip, and it ends in Canada, but would require about two to four weeks to complete. Now, when Paula left, she had no extra clothes, no food, no supplies. She wasn't wearing proper hiking gear, so unless she met some said boyfriend and he had all the supplies for her, this wouldn't have been a journey she would have been able to complete. Also, the roommate, Elizabeth Johnson, reported that Paula didn't have a boyfriend. The roommate also reported that Paula had been feeling depressed and she was really homesick, which was even worse as she wasn't able to make it home for that Thanksgiving. A waitress at a local restaurant did report seeing someone who looked like it might have been Paula. She was sitting at a booth at the diner with a 25-ish year old man who seemed to be really abusive towards her. The language he was using and he sounded angry. This happened at about 9.30 p.m. the day of her disappearance. When the man left the table for a bit, the girl actually asked how far Bennington was from the restaurant. And she also stated to the waitress that she had $1,000 on her, but now it was missing and she didn't know where it had went. That was the last anybody has ever heard or seen of Paula Weldon. And it's not confirmed that the waitress actually saw her. She just thought it looked like Paula. There have been extensive searches of the area with nothing found. There are always newspaper articles running on the disappearance, even to this day in the area. But nothing has ever been found. This next story takes place on December 1st of 1949, which was the exact date that Paula went missing just three years later. And this is the disappearance of James Tedford. James Tedford was living at the Vermont Soldiers Home in Bennington, Vermont. He was visiting family in St. Albans, which is about three hours from Bennington. His family accompanied him to the bus stop for his return home journey to Bennington and waved him goodbye seeing him take off on the bus. There are many witnesses on the bus who saw him get on the bus and actually saw him get on the bus before the last stop that would take them to Bennington. Though somewhere between that last stop and Bennington, 
James went missing. Though the bus had never stopped in between that last stop and the stop before. When there was an investigation, his luggage was found in the luggage rack and his bus card was left on his seat. The records on Tedford kind of vary a bit. Um, his birthday is reported four different times in four different ways. One account says 1882, the next 1884, one is 1892, and one is 1895, which is more than a 10-year difference with some of these records. These birth dates, they are per his marriage licenses, his draft cards, and census records. So we don't actually know how old Mr. Tedford was when he disappeared. He had been married. His wife's name was Pearl. And Pearl was just 16 at the time they were married, which wasn't uncommon back in those times. Tedford had served in the war, and when he returned, his wife had disappeared, and their rental home was completely vacant and abandoned. She is said to be one of the other disappearances that happened in the Bennington Triangle, though apparently she was unhappy and she didn't like living there alone. She wasn't happy being married. And she didn't actually disappear. She just left the area, didn't file for divorce, but ended up living in Vermont for the rest of her life. She died at the age of 72 of a heart attack on July 4th of 1985 in the state of Vermont. Tedford, though, didn't know what had happened to his wife. He didn't know if she had gone missing, if she had left, and he was really depressed and lonely, so that's actually why he moved into the soldier's home. But reports say he wasn't happy there either and had actually gone missing on more than one occasion while there. And that is the last records we have of Tedford. No one knows what happened to him after he disappeared from that bus. In 1949, it is said that there were three experienced hunters who went missing in the Glastonbury area while hunting. But oddly enough, with all the disappearances, especially with such famous cases like Paula Jean, there are no reports in the papers about these three hunters going missing. I have no records at all, so this might just be a legend that got added on to the other disappearances. Or maybe it became confused with the Mitty Rivers disappearance where he was there with three other gentlemen. I'm not sure. On October 12th of 1950, there was an eight-year-old boy named Paul Jepson who was riding along with his mother in her work truck. They stopped at the local town dump where Miss Jepson actually tended to the pigs there. She told Paul to wait in the truck while she went ahead and took care of feeding the pigs. When she came back, Paul was nowhere to be found. He wasn't in the truck. She was calling for him. He wasn't coming back. After a period of time, she ended up calling authorities, but she wasn't too worried as Paul kind of had the tendency to run off. He loved playing in the woods. So she didn't panic at first, but she thought it might be a good idea to have the police involved. And luckily, Paul was wearing a bright red jacket so he could easily be spotted by observers. Search parties scoured the area but couldn't find any signs of the boy in the bright red jacket. They were really surprised as red is pretty easy to spot. They finally brought in some bloodhounds to track his scent. 
The bloodhounds did catch the scent of Paul, but actually lost his scent at the junction of the East and Chapel Roads. It is thought that possibly someone picked him up. He was kidnapped in a truck. Maybe he thought it was someone he knew, but shouldn't have gone with. After all these years, no one has ever been able to find out what happened to eight-year-old Paul Jepson. On October 28th of 1950, a woman named Frida Langer was out camping with her cousin and a few friends. This is 16 days after Paul went missing. Frida was 53 years old, and her cousin Herbert and a few friends were camping near the Somerset Reservoir. About 100 yards from the campsite, Frida actually ended up slipping, and when she slipped, she fell into a stream making her clothes, her boots, everything wet. Now, for any of you who have gone hiking, it is miserable to hike in wet pants, wet socks, wet shoes, so you can't blame Frida for wanting to return to the campsite to get changed. Her cousin Herbert said he'd wait for her at the trail, and when she returned, they'd head back out on their hike. After quite a bit of time, he realized Frida hadn't returned yet, so he went back to the campsite to see what was taking her so long. When he arrived at the campsite, her friends reported that she had never come back to the campsite. Now, Frida was a really experienced outdoors woman. She had been camping her whole life. She frequently went out into the wilderness, even by herself. And there was a clear path back to the campsite. So it's not like she could have gotten lost. There wasn't inclement weather. And five searches were conducted over five weeks. It included hounds, aircraft, over 300 searchers. But no traces of her were found during these five searches. On May 12, 1951, just over six months later, Frida's body was actually found. It was three and a half miles from the campsite in the east branch of the Deerfield River. This surprised people as the area had previously been extensively searched and there was no sign of her body at that time. The dogs never found her scent in the area either, which you would think they would be able to find her scent since the body was so fresh. The cause of death for Miss Frida was actually not able to be determined due to the condition of her remains. She had been out in the wilderness for over six months with different temperatures, different animals, so they just couldn't figure out how she had passed. One interesting fact about this is hers is actually the only body to ever be found of the disappearances other than the hunter who was found against the tree three days later. On November 6th of 1950, Martha Jones' parents reported that they thought she had run off with her boyfriend. The authorities got involved, but when they approached the boyfriend, he stated he had not seen her. A search ensued because of all the disappearances that had been going on in the area, but no one was able to find her. I did look up Martha Jones because, again, there was no records in archives and things about her. There was no newspaper reports. So I really looked into the genealogy records of this area. Her records, up to a year ago, she actually still lives in Vermont, in the area. She is not missing. She didn't run away from her boyfriend. She is safe and sound in good old Vermont. 
On December 3rd of 1950, there was a girl named Frances Christman. She was on her way to visit a friend who lived about a half mile up the road from her, but she never made it. This is also another story where there are very vague accounts, like was she driving, was she walking, what was the story, how old was she? There are no genealogy records of her birth or past other than a residence record from 1949. So I don't know where Frances Christman ended up or what happened to her, but I would think with all the famous disappearances in the area that this would have been in the newspaper in the 1950s. This takes us to our last disappearance, and that is pretty recent. It happened in July of 2019. And this was a 43-year-old woman who lived in New York, and her name was Jessica Hildenbrandt. She lived just 45 minutes from the Glastonbury area and was known to spend a lot of time there hiking on her days off. On September 17th of 2019, some hikers actually found a human jawbone in a gravel pit near the Somerset Reservoir. It was eventually identified through DNA testing as Jessica Hildebrandt. Her family had not reported her missing, and her last contact with her family was actually in July of 2019 before the jawbone was found. Her death was ruled a murder without a known cause, but they thought that she might have been visiting her boyfriend who lived close by. A fun fact is Jessica Hildebrandt's nickname was Red. So this leads most people to believe that it is an unlucky color in these disappearances. Her nickname was Red, because if you remember, both Paul Jepson and Miss Jean Weldon were both wearing red jackets when they disappeared. In August of 2021, a man named Joseph Schoenig was said to have disappeared, but he didn't actually. He had been missing for a few weeks when some local hikers reported seeing a red pickup truck in the parking lot of the Somerset Reservoir. When police inspected the truck, they found 73-year-old Joseph Schoenig in the pickup truck in the driver's seat, and he had died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. There are multiple reports of people visiting the area, with, and including avid hikers, who report the feelings of getting suddenly dizzy, confused, and disoriented while visiting the area. One hiker reported to the Bennington Banner, and his name was Robert Stingley. He said while he was in the area, he suddenly became dizzy and confused. When he got his wits back, it was dark, so it was too late to hike out but he had difficulty figuring out where he was and what was going on, even though he was very familiar with the area. He ended up taking shelter under a large tree, but he said he really felt a strange energy throughout the night. The next morning, he was able to find his way out, but he couldn't account for what had happened. There are many theories for these disappearances. I'm going to go through these theories one by one. One theory is that is of a serial killer on the loose. But this doesn't really add up. Serial killers usually have a single method they really like to use. They focus on a specific age, a specific gender. These people ranged from eight years old to in their 70s. They also disappeared various ways, but nothing was ever found of them. So maybe he did have a way he killed them and we just don't know. 
though why would he keep the bodies but let one be found? It just doesn't add up that it might be a serial killer. There are also many people who live off-grid in these mountains. It's very remote, and these people really rarely leave the wooded areas. They sometimes head into town a few times a year to sell furs or maybe stock up on a few supplies. But these people who live the lifestyle, maybe they don't want people trespassing on their land in their area. So if you do, they kind of take you out. You might want to stay on the path. But again, many people who live this lifestyle, they just want to be left alone. They don't want to associate with people. So if they were kidnapping and killing people, in the woods, this would lead to unwanted attention and searchers in the woods, which is the opposite of what these people would want. So I'm not sure that this one kind of holds credibility either. There are also reports that it could be bears and cougars who are attacking these people. Hikers and hunters have reported seeing cougars in the area, which can weigh upwards of 200 pounds and take down a person. Though, in researching, it's actually stated that there have not been mountain lions in the area since the late 1800s. Now, it could be a bear or something else. I'm not sure. And we can't tell from the body that was recovered due to the condition it was in when they found it. The next account of what it could be is probably the strangest one, and that is of man-eating boulders. Yes, I did not stutter. Man-eating boulders. <laughs> this originates from Native American lore, and it is said that if you step on a specific rock on the mountain, that it will devour you before you even have the time to scream. The theory of what this could be is there are many sinkholes that are prominent in the area, so the man-eating boulder could actually just be somebody being swallowed up in a sinkhole. Another thing to think about, I didn't see this as a theory, but this was a mining town and there are many unmarked mine shafts in the area where people could possibly fall through. So maybe they didn't really disappear, they just kind of fell through and couldn't get out. And if you remember the claims of the murder that Henry McDowell committed in the late 1800s, he escaped the asylum, killed the person by hitting him over the head with a rock. Well, many claim that he stayed in the local woods and that he is the hairy man. This man is said to be a little wild and goes into town to expose himself to the local women and will sometimes wave a gun to scare people off. The issue with it being Henry McDowell is he would have been an old man by this time of these disappearances. Also, reports of some of the Issues of disappearances are reported as early as 1867, which would have been before the murders. So I don't think it would be Henry McDowell. I'm not sure who this crazy hairy man would be, but probably not him. Another theory is that of the mountain curse. This is said to be cursed because it was used as a burial ground for the indigenous people at the base of the mountain. Now, there are no documented reports of the curse or this being a burial ground till a newspaper article in the 1980s. And the reason they came across this theory is because someone discovered that there was ancient stone carns found off of the long trail. 
The origins, though, of the stone carvings are not known. They could be from the colonists who settled in the area. They could be from the tribes of the indigenous people. But no one knows of this time. The use of the carns is what led people to the belief that this was Indian burial grounds. But again, we don't know. Although, in addition to the beliefs that this might be the burial grounds, is it might also be associated with the spirits of those who are buried here, if they are, and that of the Wendigo spirit. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Wendigo, this is in the indigenous people's beliefs, is the Wendigo is a spirit, and this spirit will actually swallow you whole, or it will lift you in the air and drag your feet along the ground until you pretty much burn up and die. Not a really pleasant way to go, so hopefully avoid the Wendigo. The next theory is based on that of the Bennington Monster. The Bennington Monster is said to be a Bigfoot-like creature, and the first reports of him are back all the way to the Abenaki tribe, where they said that they saw a large animal that was half animal, half man. The next report of the Bennington Monster came in the 1800s, when there was a stagecoach coming into the area when the driver saw a large track in the mud. He wasn't sure what they were, so he hopped down to inspect it, stopping the stagecoach. When he did so, they were attacked by a large monster that actually ended up knocking the stagecoach entirely on its side. Witnesses said it was a large, hairy, black creature that was over six feet tall. There have been other various unsubstantiated reports Something to think about is there is quite a number of black bears in the area. They could have mistaken this Bennington monster for a black bear. Black bears don't normally initiate attacks with humans, especially like that. But if you were between her and her cubs, she would definitely protect them. And the last reports of what this could be are, of course, aliens. There have been many sightings of lights over Glastonbury and people reporting being abducted. In 1984, a man named Don Pratt reported an aircraft that looked like a flying silo, which was also backed up by many reports of nearby hikers. No one was able to ever figure out what the lights or the flying object could have been. Maybe it was aliens. At the end of all of this, it sounds to me like this is a large, untamed area where it's really easy to get lost or see things, especially if you're by yourself. It can be kind of creepy. Even locals and experienced outdoorsmen, they state they get disoriented, the quick weather changes can make it difficult. And with such a large area, we have two murders, seven confirmed disappearances, and one suicide in the area. The murders happened well over a hundred years ago. In two of the disappearances, the bodies were found, that of the hunter who may have been crushed, and that of the female hiker found months later. Seven disappearances sounds like a lot, right? But remember, these disappearances spanned over 75 years. Though, to be fair, most of them did happen within a short time, but that was still a nine-year span which isn't unheard of in the world. 
So I'm not sure that any of this has a supernatural meaning to it. I'm not sure that these people would have been swallowed up by a man-eating rock or eaten by Bigfoot. But honestly, at the end of the day, we don't know because we never found the bodies except for those two people. Maybe it's the Wendigo. Maybe it is the burial grounds. Who knows? I think it's time for you to decide. I would love to hear your thoughts on whether you think the Bennington Triangle is haunted by paranormal events or not. Maybe you've had a personal experience, you might have some proof, or you'd like to share some other facts you might have found about the triangle. I would love to hear your episode feedback as well as suggestions you may have for a future episode, maybe one in your state. So make sure you tune in every Wednesday wherever you tune in and don't forget to leave a review. I'd recommend a five-star review, but again, I am biased. And also make sure you follow this podcast so you know as soon as a new episode is ready and you can show a little love to your favorite paranormal podcast. You can follow this podcast on social media for more information on each episode, including past and future episodes, including pictures, links, and much, much more. You can follow on Facebook at Paranormal Exposed, on Instagram at The Paranormal Truth, or you can email at paranormalexposedpodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you all so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you all next Wednesday.